In December of 1961, a poet and editor of a Soviet literary journal, a man by the name of Alexander Tvardovsky, he took to his bed a manuscript that had been brought to him by an unknown Russian author. Now, he intended to read part of the book just before he went to sleep, but after the first couple of sentences, he stopped. He knew at once that this manuscript was no ordinary book. He knew that it was a masterpiece in the making. And he knew that such a masterpiece deserved more respect than his bedclothes. So he got up out of his bed and he put on his suit and tie and he went downstairs and sat down at his editorial desk for a proper reading. Now the book that that editor was reading was One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. And the author was a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And it was a story, this short story, about a man named Ivan Shukov, who was sentenced to a labor camp in the Soviet Gulag. And it was based on Solzhenitsyn's own experience, for he had spent years in such camps after being found guilty for publishing what was called anti-Soviet propaganda in the year 1945. And in his book, in this story, he, he lets you see and feel the misery and horror that those prisoners faced on a daily basis. It's so heartbreaking, in fact, that it even brought the Russian communist leader, Nikita Khrushchev, to tears when he first read it. But one of the most striking things about Ivan Denisovich isn't the misery that it portrays. No, one of the most striking things about it is how strongly it resists the temptation to divide people up into the good and the bad, on the, to the, into the righteous and the wicked. Uh, you would think after Solzhenitsyn had endured those years in a labor camp, you would think that he would want to, to tell a story about evil prison guards and innocent prisoners, about wicked political leaders and righteous political dissidents. But that's not the story he tells. For in Ivan Denisovich, it is clear that being a guard doesn't make you hopelessly evil, and being a prisoner doesn't make you good. The prisoners are victims, to be sure, but in the story, most of them are capable of the same selfishness, the same pettiness, the same spitefulness, the same meanness toward their fellow man as any of the guards. And that was intentional. Later on, as Solzhenitsyn was reflecting on his time in that labor camp, he, he talked about this theme explicitly. Gradually, he says, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. That's not a message that you hear very often today. Today, we live during an incredibly tribal and polarized time. And, and one of the effects of all this tribalism and polarization is that we tend to divide the world up into the good guys and the bad guys, the righteous and the wicked. If you don't believe me, just spend 10, spend 10 minutes watching cable news. The cable news channels, they differ on which political party and which political opinions they support, but there is one thing on which they do not differ. If you watch the anchors and the talking heads on those channels, you'll quickly realize that they're all certain about one thing, 
they know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. They know that there is one righteous party and one wicked party and very little gray in the middle. But it's not just them. In the church, we do the same thing. We too tend to divide up groups into the good and the bad. And maybe it's based on people's doctrine or maybe on their political opinions or, or maybe on how other Christians choose to relate to culture. Whatever the reason is, it often seems that we draw the line between good and evil, not through every human heart, but through classes and parties and church denominations. So we need to listen to Solzhenitsyn. But even more importantly, we need to listen to the Apostle Paul. For in Romans chapter 2, Paul confronts this exact tendency, and he too rejects it not because of his experience in the Russian gulag, but because of what has been revealed to him in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And notice how Paul begins chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. It's important to notice that a shift has taken place here between what Paul had been talking about and what he's addressing now. In the preceding verses, in chapter 1, he was discussing how through sin human beings had turned away from their Creator and had begun to live against the nature and design of how they were created. In that chapter, he was, he was using a lot of they pronouns when he was talking about, as he puts it in verse 18, men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness and what happened to them. And if you're reading or if you were hearing Romans for the first time, you might start doing exactly what we're so prone to do. You might start thinking that what Paul has in mind is those other people, you know, the wicked ones, that unrighteous group. But now all of a sudden he turns his attention away from them to you. Therefore, you have no excuse, you who sit in judgment against others. Now, what's going on here? Well, I think that the New Testament scholar Charles Cranfield summarizes it very well when he says, In 1, 18-32, Paul has spoken of the judgment which the gospel pronounces on humankind generally. Now, in chapter 2, he has said about showing that those who imagine that they are exceptions to this general rule are, in fact, not exceptions at all. As scholars have long debated precisely who Paul has in mind here when he talks about this, this you, most agree that he probably has in mind a Jewish audience or a Jewish reader because, as the chapter goes on, he, he speaks directly about Jews and Gentiles. And by verse 17, he's talking openly about Jews who judge Gentiles. But Paul doesn't actually say precisely who he has in mind when he uses those words, you have no excuse. And I think that's important because Jews aren't the only ones who engage in such judgmental thinking. It applies more broadly. In fact, Paul himself applies it more broadly when he says, every one of you who judges of course, Paul isn't talking about any judgmental person. 
He is speaking specifically to those who claim some kind of relationship with the God of Israel. Those who, as he puts it in verse 4, presume on the riches of God's kindness. Now, that's why it makes sense that later in verse 17, that he speaks directly to Jewish readers. You call yourself a Jew, he says, and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. Now, if you think about it, that, that sounds pretty good. These are people who, they know what is right, they know God's will, and they approve what is right and true, the things that are excellent. What is more, as Paul goes on to say, they even teach the truth to others. If you're going to translate this to today, you probably say that this is the person who, who knows the Bible and has a biblical worldview. And they are orthodox in their faith and they're, they're biblical in the way that they think about culture and politics and morality. In fact, they even teach others how to have a biblical worldview. But Paul says that isn't enough. Why? Why isn't it enough that they know what is right and they, they approve what is right? John Calvin makes an interesting comment on this verse. He says that there are two kinds of approval. One, the approval of choice, when we embrace the good of which we have approved. And the other, the approval of judgment, by which we distinguish from good and evil, although we do not by any means pursue it vigorously or studiously. In other words, there's a difference between having a right opinion about something and actually doing something about it. There's a difference between having a biblical worldview and actually living as a Christian. And what Paul is calling out here is the hypocrisy of those who take great pride in having all the right opinions, but who don't actually follow through by living in the right way. You then, he says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you not steal? You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? And that last question alone is pretty convicting. Sometimes, sometimes you'll hear that there's no difference in the divorce rate or the rate of infidelity or pornography usage among Christians and non-Christians. Uh, that tends to be overstated, actually. There are measurable differences, but the difference is far more minimal than it should be. The truth is that many Christians, including those who are preachers and teachers and who speak eloquently and courageously about, about the problems of sexual immorality in modern culture, the truth is that far too often these same people are guilty of the precise things they condemn in others. The only difference is that they, well, I guess I should say, using Paul, that we often take comfort in the rightness of our moral opinions or our outward piety, that we allow ourselves to think that these opinions or this piety makes us a part of the righteous crowd and not like those other people. But Paul is insistent. No, God does not judge on the basis of religious membership. God does not judge on the basis of how well you know scripture or how biblical your worldview is. God does not give extra points for having right opinions. For, as Paul says in verse 11, 
God shows no partiality. God does not draw the dividing line between good and evil according to political party or class or church affiliation. For, as we read in 1 Samuel, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. At this point, Paul still has not yet gotten to the good news of what has taken place in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's two chapters in, and he still hasn't unpacked the gospel that he said he was set apart to preach. But that's because, just as we talked about in the last session, before he can tell us the good news, he must tell us the bad news. And just in case we think that bad news is about those other people, that they are the real problem in the world, that we are somehow an exception, well, in this chapter, as you can see, Paul is removing any doubt. Not only is there bad news, but that bad news applies to you just as much to anyone else. There's a story often told that in the early years of the 20th century that the English newspaper, The Times, sent out an inquiry to some famous authors asking them to contribute an essay in response to the question, what's wrong with the world? And one response that they received was, from a well-known Christian intellectual of the day. But it wasn't in the form of an essay. It didn't even really consist of some basic bullet points. Instead, to the question, what's wrong with the world? All the response said was, Dear Sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. I don't know whether G.K. Chesterton had this second chapter of Romans in mind when he wrote that response. In fact, I'm not even entirely sure that this story ever really happened. But the important thing is that this response is completely out of step with what we normally hear from public intellectuals or talking heads. We expect a diatribe. We expect to hear who's to blame. But a man who has taken Paul's message to heart knows that the line between good and evil isn't so easily traceable that the world isn't easily divided into the good and the bad, that the problem lies as much with himself as with anyone else. That's Paul's message in Romans 2. And if we're going to hear the good news rightly, then it's a message that we must learn to take to heart.